Please uh, remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 3. Apostle Paul has faced many opponents in various courtrooms in the book of Acts. Now he's about to face some more. But as these enemies continue to gather around him, even though that some of them seem a little nicer than others, all of them are arrayed against the Lord Jesus Christ, refusing to bow the knee. But Apostle Paul knows that he is in the hands of one whose power and authority is far above any of theirs. Let's consider Psalm 3 as we think of this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Amen. Now let's turn to Acts 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day... He took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, No one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, 
To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them, but when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Amen. You may be seated. There's a well-known economist who is famous for saying that, in general, uh, politicians are not really interested in solving our problems so much as they are interested in solving their own problems. And uh, his point is, is not to you know, bash politicians as a class of people. He's simply saying this is the way the incentives in politics work. He's an economist. He's thinking about incentives. So people in power... Uh, tend to be not necessarily uh, those who are best at maximizing the public good. They tend to be those who are best at maximizing votes, right? That's how they get into power in the first place. Now, obviously, that's a a fairly cynical way of framing things, and um, there are no doubt many individual exceptions, true statesmen who stand on principle, even against... um, What's popular? But, of course, sad experience often bears out the point that he's making. Um, And interestingly, that principle isn't only true in 
a free democratic society where we elect our leaders, really in any political system, those in power in general tend to do the things that will help them to stay in power. It may be that they're not accountable to uh, voters, uh, but there are other people that they are accountable to, that people that they do need to keep happy, people that they do need to avoid offending um, if they want to keep their crowns on their heads or, for that matter, their heads attached to their necks. Um, there's a commentator who's really helped me think about this chapter particularly. I've referenced before uh, named Ben Witherington, um, who in his commentary, he focuses a lot on the social setting of the book of Acts. And he really hammers home um, in this section that, that this chapter is really all about relationships. We read these, these accounts of, the, of these trials of Paul, and we want to find out about the legal details impacting his legal situation. And, and those are significant but when you read what's really going on um, with the characters here and in this trial hearing all of the, the, the legal drama going on, you, you realize that the way Paul is being treated in this chapter is a lot more about relationships among the people in power than it is about the impartial application of objective Roman laws. So let's start working our way through this chapter with that in mind. And our points are going to be, first, another politician, verses 1 to 12. Second, another Herod, verses 13 to 22. And then at the end, another opportunity, verses 23 to 27. So another politician, another Herod, and another opportunity. So first another politician. The last politician was Felix. We talked about him last time. Um, The governor uh, or procurator of Judea from chapter 24. Uh, He was uh, recalled to Rome in the year 58 AD. And once Felix got back to Rome from Judea, uh, the the Jewish historian Josephus describes how uh, there was a group of representatives of the Jewish leaders from Caesarea who went to Rome and complained to the emperor about how harsh he had been as governor. And in a lot of cases, that would have resulted in a pretty uh, harsh punishment for Felix. Um, In this case, it so happened that Felix's brother had a close relationship with the emperor, kind of got him off the hook. But you can imagine Festus now, uh, Felix's replacement as governor, as procurator, uh, he doesn't want to have the same kind of thing happen to him, right? He knows that he is in a kind of delicate situation here. Um, and he knows that weaving his way to a successful tenure as procurator of Judea is, is going to be a pretty intricate dance. Um, and so what's the very first thing that he does when he gets to Caesarea? It's just three days after getting off the boat. Remember, Caesarea is the political capital of the Roman province. But just three days after he gets off the boat, up he goes to Jerusalem, which is the the cultural capital, the religious capital, where the movers and shakers of um, the Jewish people um, are in power. So he goes, "Let's, let's meet with the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews. And uh, when he gets there, 
a significant item on the agenda of the Jerusalem leaders for that introductory meeting turns out to be the situation with Paul. That's what they want to talk about with Festus, and therefore Festus cannot ignore it, because what has he come to do? He's come to build this relationship with these people in Jerusalem. And so, um, on the other hand, of course, he he also has an incentive to uh, set the tone that he is also strong and independent, that he's not just going to do whatever they say. And so, you can kind of see that dynamic playing out when they ask him to transfer Paul back to Jerusalem. They want him to, to, to bring Paul back to Jerusalem um, for trial there, and Felix says no. Uh, he's in custody in Caesarea. I'm about to go back there in just a few days. If you want to bring charges against Paul, you go to where he is, you go to where I am. That's the way things are going to work around here with this new sheriff who's in town. And it's a good thing he says that too, because of course Luke says their whole plan was uh, not to try Paul in Jerusalem at all, but to ambush him along the way and, and, and kill him. Um, well, sure enough, the, the day after Festus uh, gets back to Caesarea, uh, Paul is one of the first items on the docket of Festus's court there when he sits down in his official capacity to, to judge, uh, no doubt, a number of cases that had been on hold um, since um, Felix had left and waiting for Festus to get there from Rome. And so once again, here come Paul's opponents, bringing, as they have done so many times before, many and serious charges against him. But of course, none of those charges could they prove because of this. The things that Paul had really done that upset them weren't actually crimes against Roman, uh, from a Roman point of view. On the other hand, the crimes that they were accusing him of, Paul hadn't actually done any of those things. So they're trying to bring together their um, uh, anger at Paul, the things that upset them, with the cold, hard steel of, of Roman law, and they just they won't meet in the middle because there's not an overlap there. What they're upset about isn't a crime, and the crimes they're trying to accuse him of aren't things that Paul has actually done. You can call him a rebel, you can call him a seditionist, you can call him a disturber of the peace to try to get the Romans on your side, uh, but saying those things doesn't make them so. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that his conscience is clear before God and man, as he told Felix in the last chapter. And, and as a result, he holds very consistently to the same kind of defense that he gave to Felix. He says, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense, verse 8. And so Festus has this dilemma on his hands. Uh, the Jews uh, pretty clearly have no case. Right? And so he could, at this point, just dismiss the charges. He could just set Paul free. And in fact, that would be really the only just and right thing to do. But Festus, I'm sorry to say, was not really interested in Paul's problems so much as he was interested in his own problems. And his own problems at this point centered around securing the good opinion of those Jerusalem leaders and their support. And so Festus next thinks, well, uh, maybe this will work. Maybe I can get Paul to agree 
to their plan to send him back to Jerusalem for trial. But of course, Paul says, no, Paul's not going for that. He knows better. He knows that there in Jerusalem, the scales of justice are going to be tilted very firmly against him. Um, And if there's anything I can be punished for, he says, it's got to be an offense against Roman law, not Jewish law. And in fact, in fact, he says, if I've offended against Roman law, I'm willing to take my lumps. I'm willing to take the consequences for it like a man. Uh, but the one thing I'm not going to do is I'm not willingly going to agree to place myself right into the hands of these people who have made very plain their intention to get rid of me by fair means or foul. And so if you're not going to declare me innocent yourself, at least don't put me in their hands. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. So what does that mean? When, when we think about an appeal in our legal system, we usually think about appealing a verdict. So the trial ends, there's a verdict, and then you appeal that, that decision to a higher court. Well, here there's been no verdict. In fact, there aren't even clear charges. It's not even clear what Paul's being accused of. Um, but there was a, a privilege that Roman citizens had where if you were convinced that you were not going to get true justice in a court somewhere out in the far reaches of the empire, then you could insist on being brought back to Rome to be tried there instead, where theoretically you could expect real justice. You know, Because in Rome, that's the heart of the empire, that's the, that's, um, the place where you could uh, expect to get um, better justice there than maybe in other places farther away from Rome. Uh, but we also need to remember at this point that this is about something much bigger than just protecting Paul from uh, having to face a, a kangaroo court in Jerusalem. This appeal to Rome is part of a bigger plan, right? Paul is not just playing defense here. He is playing offense. Because remember what Jesus had revealed to him in chapter 23, take courage For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The plots of Paul's enemies and the politicking of Festus, notwithstanding, whose plan is actually succeeding here? Whose plan is moving forward? Who is on the throne? Who is actually accomplishing his purpose? In spite of the stalemate that Festus has run into, in in spite of... Paul's enemies being stymied and their intent, whose intent is being carried out? Well, it's King Jesus, right? And so Festus has no choice at this point but to say to Caesar, you have appealed. To Caesar, you shall go. All right. Now we come to Agrippa. And for this, for this next section, uh, or Agrippa gets introduced. You need a little bit of a historical background here. Um, Okay, so when Jesus was born, birth of Jesus, Bethlehem. So at that time, there was no Roman procurator of Judea. No Roman governor of Judea. Judea at that time was under the authority of Herod the Great. Okay, that's the Herod who built the temple in Jerusalem. And that Herod, Herod the Great, the Romans allowed to have the title of king. King Herod the Great. He was still under Roman authority, but it was a local... He wasn't Jewish, he was Edomite, but he was at least a local ruler who had this title of being the monarch uh, rather than 
somebody coming from Rome to come and be an imperial governor in the area. Uh, But when Herod the Great died, the very broad territory that he controlled was carved up, and it was governed by uh, more than one of his descendants. And unfortunately, the one son who inherited uh, the rule over Judea um, kind of botched botched it. Uh, He he did a bad job. And um, that is why, by this time, uh, where we are now, in the 50s, um, Judea was no longer under the control of any Herod. Instead, you now had these Roman governors in charge, like Festus and Felix and Pontius Pilate, Uh, some years before um, when Jesus was crucified. Um, However, there were still descendants of Herod the Great uh, controlling smaller kingdoms near Judea, uh, kind of bordering Judea in the general uh, vicinity, that part of the world. And so, for example, during Pilate's time, Uh, Galilee, where Jesus spent uh, so much of his ministry, uh, was under the control of Herod Antipas. You may have heard of Herod Antipas. That's the Herod who killed John the Baptist. Uh, That's the Herod who was involved in Jesus' trial at Jerusalem. Even though he was not king over Jerusalem, he was king over Galilee. Uh, Well, when you go down through the decades, uh, what you find is that the the territory that's controlled by these different members of, of the Herod dynasty keeps changing Um, Earlier in Acts, we met Herod Agrippa I. That's the Herod who killed um, the Apostle James. And that Herod, Herod Agrippa I, um, had uh, actually was king of Judea. There was kind of an interim where where Judea now had a Jewish king um, in between Roman governors. Um, But when he died, his son was too young to take over that authority. And so um, Judea reverted back to having a Roman governor again. So you see, it's, it's, always, it's very much in flux. It keeps changing. You get a Jewish king over the area, but then now you have Roman governors again. And that's where we are now. That son was Herod Agrippa II. Herod Agrippa II, uh, II is, the, um, is the King Agrippa that we meet here in Acts 25. So when his father died, uh, the emperor said, um, this is Claudius, the emperor said, okay, so you can still be a king, you can still have that title, but not over Judea. That's, that's too big of a territory if you'd have all that responsibility. I'm going to let you be king over this smaller portion of territory that's near Judea. Okay. Now, uh, this Agrippa, um, king, uh, Herod Agrippa II, he was ethnically Jewish, And so even though he wasn't king over Jerusalem, he did have some official authority, some responsibilities connected with the temple. Uh, For example, he was the person who was supposed to appoint uh, the new high priest when they needed a new high priest. And so you can see how um, Agrippa would have been an important person for Festus to know, an important person from Festus's point of view to kind of get in his corner. Because again, it's this an, another influential person with the Jews uh, that, that Festus wants to be have as his ally, uh, the king over a neighboring territory with all of this influence in Jerusalem. That is why, bringing it back to the text here, that is why once again in verses 13 to 22, Festus is networking once more. He's, he's building this relational rapport 
uh, with someone that he hopes will be a powerful colleague and ally in, in sort of mediating Roman rule over this region. And uh, so first it's the Jerusalem leadership, now it's this neighboring king, Herod Agrippa. All right. Now, in the context of this whole two-volume history that Luke is recounting in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, there's another layer of meaning here for us that is really important that we see. Because this new character, Agrippa, is not totally new, is he? Because there is a significant sense in which this is just another Herod. Another Herod, like the one who tried to destroy the infant Jesus and massacre the children of Bethlehem. Herod the Great. Another Herod, like the one who beheaded John the Baptist. Herod Antipas. Another Herod, like the other one who had James killed. Herod Agrippa I. One Herod after another is consistently proven to be an enemy of Christ and of the people of God. And most significantly, of course, we should remember what happened. What happened between the Roman governor, Pilate, and Herod Agrippa, uh, sorry, Herod Antipas, after the trial of Jesus? Got to remember back to Luke chapter 23. Herod makes a total mockery of Jesus. He, he clothes him in a robe and he, he sends him back to, Herod, back to Pilate for his continued trial resulting in his death. And after that mockery of Jesus, after he sends him back to Pilate, what does it say? Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. What is happening here in Acts 25 is deja vu all over again. It's an innocent follower of Christ, now bringing together in friendship once again these two enemies of Christ around a shared travesty of justice against him, against Paul, just like the one their predecessors committed against the Lord Jesus. The same thing is happening all over again. Now, notice in verses 18 and 19 uh, the way that Festus describes Paul's case to Herod Agrippa. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. It was all about their religion. It was all about this Jesus who is dead, but Paul says he's alive. I don't know how to judge a case like this. Can you help me out? I question that. Festus, what do you mean you don't know how? You have just stated outright that you know this man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. Later in verse 25, it's even more condemning to Festus. Later in verse 25, he says, I found that he had done nothing deserving death. How much clearer can it be? Festus, you are the Roman governor of Judea. It is your duty to do the just and right thing, particularly for a Roman citizen, which is to call these accusations out as the sham that they are and to set Paul free. But Festus isn't interested in Paul's problems, is he? He's interested in his own problems. So he doesn't invite Agrippa to help him figure out the right thing to do. 
He's inviting Agrippa to help him figure out how to navigate this tricky political situation and what to write to Caesar. The last verse of the chapter, verse 26, shows another side to this. He wants to keep the Jerusalem leaders happy, but he also has someone else that he has to avoid upsetting, and that's the big boss. That's Caesar. What is Caesar going to say if he gets this prisoner on appeal with no accusations against him? Agrippa, help me out here. What do you think I should say? And so they set up this hearing for the next day, and and, um, the chapter ends just before the speeches start. That's what we'll get to next time. Uh, But not before we get a chance to see the great pomp and pageantry of Agrippa's grand entrance with his queen, Bernice, uh, as gathered in this courtroom are, are all of the who's who of the capital city, and Paul is trotted out before them really as kind of part of the show. Remember, this isn't about justice. This is about networking. It's about building the relationship. Uh, ben, ben Witherington, that come to here I mentioned earlier, he goes so far as to say this hearing is almost like a form of, of entertainment for this royal guest. Something for, something for Festus and Agrippa to do together. Clearly a chance for Agrippa to show off his uh, royal splendor before the most powerful people in Judea, show how great he is. But now let's think about this from Paul's point of view. What is this from Paul's point of view? Well, remember from last time, how does Paul view all of his trials? He views them as opportunities. From Paul's point of view, in the providence of God, this is just another opportunity that Christ has provided for him to bear witness to the good news about the resurrection of Jesus. And what an opportunity it is. I mean, think about this. Paul, the free man, would never have had access to this group of the, the noblest, most powerful men and women in this region. He never would have had a chance to speak to these guys. But Paul, the prisoner, Paul, the prisoner on trial for his life, he does have access to this, this captive audience who are just asking for it. They're just giving him this wide-open invitation to tell them all about his message that has gotten him in such trouble with the enemies of Christ. And so it just goes to show, once again, doesn't it, who is on the throne here? Um, next time, it's going to be a delight to see Paul walk right through this door that Christ has opened for the gospel, and to do so with the same confidence and eloquence that the Holy Spirit has given him every other time that he's done this. And why is that? Well, it's because Paul knows something that this governor and this king and all of their nobles don't understand. He can see with the eyes of faith what they cannot, because it is an unseen reality. And he describes it in Ephesians 1, and he's living out this reality here, that God the Father has seated the risen Christ on a throne much higher than Festus's tribunal, a seat, Ephesians 1 says, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, be it Festus or Herod or Caesar for that matter, those names that, that made the people of this day tremble and bow the knee. That's not all Paul knew, either. Furthermore, he also really believed and acted on what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, when he said that God raised us up with Christ 
and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul could see with the eyes of faith that he was not, in an ultimate sense, subject to the judgment of Festus or Herod or Caesar, that he was, in fact, seated with Christ on the throne from which the Lord would one day judge all of these earthly rulers. Uh, You and I live in a world that hasn't changed all that much, really, from the world of Roman power. Politicians now, like then, are still generally more interested in their own problems than ours. Uh, People generally, not just in government, but in your workplace, in family life, sadly, in the church sometimes, people are still so often, in all different areas of life, so quick to sacrifice what is just and right for what is popular, for what is convenient, for what is easy, for what will get them ahead, help them gain some advantage over others. And listen, the temptation is very strong. Temptation is very strong to participate in that way of doing things, that approach to life, to sacrifice what you know is right because you want to preserve the good opinion of other people that you think can help you to get ahead in life. People... Um, that you can't stand imagining them thinking badly of you, um, even if it's for the sake of Christ. Even if we avoid that temptation. On the other hand, there's still that downward drag when we see those kinds of things happening around us to get cynical, to get frustrated, and, and, and to kind of be tempted towards despair of anything good ever really happening, instead of looking up. Instead of looking up with the eyes of faith, as Paul is doing here, remembering that unseen reality, that I am seated with the Lord Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. Remembering, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, it is the Lord who judges me, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, Paul was being called to endure here. You are being called to endure uh, nothing worse than your Savior did, your Savior who suffered the, the greatest miscarriage of justice that there ever was, so that... What? So that he could bear your sin on the cross. And so that he could rise in victory over sin and death and the devil and all, over all of his enemies and yours. You belong to him and you are seated with him even now on his heavenly throne. Even as you feel yourself subjected to the great injustice of this world. Remember, this chapter is much more about relationships than it is about Roman law. You know how people say, um, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And um, sometimes we say that kind of cynically, right? Where, Where we see relationships and cronyism trumping what's really just, what's really good, what's really true. But you know that that saying is true in a higher sense. Because however much 
you and those you love may suffer because of that kind of injustice in the world, however much you, you may sacrifice, in fact, by refusing to participate in that way of doing things. We need to listen as Christians and know that it's not what we know, it is who we know. And we know the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that we're seated with him, that it is he who judges us. It's his opinion. That is the one that really matters. But is that the way you're living your life? Is that what is determining the words that you say and the choices that you will make as you go out and face the world this week? Are we really living as though it's God's opinion that really matters? As though he is really the one who is judging us? We've got to learn to see Jesus and the world and our place in it, in him, with the eyes of faith. And I think that Christ has given us the history of his servant, Paul, to help us do just that. Okay, so let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a perfectly just and good and righteous judge. We also thank you that you have not judged us according to what we deserve, but according to the righteousness of Christ you have clothed us with. Lord, we ask that you would please help us to put to death the temptation to um, live for the opinion and uh, approval of others, live making choices that we think will help us gain advantages, get ahead, instead to live as though you are the one who judges us, that it's your opinion that ultimately counts. Trusting that in Christ we are seated already with him in the heavenly places and that one day he is coming again as the judge of all. We ask this in his name. Amen.